If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Genesis chapter 42. So pray for Angie. Pray for uh, that message as it goes out for sponsorship, especially come the new year, for all those churches that are considering taking taking the home on. Uh, it has it has the potential to just expand exponentially into the lives of other children, and uh, who knows? Who knows what even one child reached with the truth of the gospel and the love and compassion that goes along with that, uh, what can happen uh, on a global scale. We do not know, but as Sean Leisure pointed out, the account of Joseph should uh, give us an indication of just what can happen and what can uh, take place and be accomplished through the life of one individual. And many of the events that shape and form that are events that happen early on in somebody's life, and that's true certainly in the case of Joseph. So so this is the third time we're going to be talking about Joseph uh, three weeks in a row, uh, and today we'll finish up the story of Joseph, if you will, and the uh, book of Genesis, and uh, next week I think we're going to be talking, uh, I think Alex is going to be sharing about Jesus, uh, the Prince of Peace from Isaiah chapter 9. And then we're into, uh, what, December 30th after that and New Year coming and so on. But but uh, anyways, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's great. I, I had a tremendous uh, few weeks thinking some of these things through. And um, there's uh, just so much here. Um, I probably should say hang on because I'm looking at 1132 and... Uh, if you have to leave at some point, I understand. I won't single you out. I'll try my best not to single you out. Um, but this is this so much in this story, okay? So l- without any further ado, let's get into it. Joseph is now a long ways from the pastures of Palestine. He is, has a new Egyptian name, a big fancy ring, Royal apparel. Instead of uh, instead of uh, shackles on his feet, he has a gold chain around his neck, and he has a chariot to ride in. How cool is that? And as he rides around Egypt, the people are all instructed to bow and cry out, bow the knee, bow the knee, whenever he passed by. He's the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth at that time, second only to the Pharaoh himself. And he's living in the palaces of Egypt. And anyone who would look at him, if they had have known from where he came, would be stunned. Their jaws would drop, and they would be unable to even speak. Such a remarkable story, this man's life. And seven years go past. They are known as the seven years of plenty just like God had said in Pharaoh's dream. The seven years have passed, and now the pasture lands of Palestine are drying up. They're getting dusty. The crops have failed. But Joseph has done exactly what he said should be done. He has gathered for seven years, gathered up 
the grain, gathered and stored it in huge storage bins. And so much grain that they stopped trying to measure it, we're told. Genesis 41, back through 53 through 57, seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to them, go to Joseph. Do what he says. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to, to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So as we read through here, we're, I hope that we're getting the strong sense that, that God is not just working in Joseph's life. God is working through Joseph's life. And that's really an important insight for us to gain from these, uh, from these passages. You know, the kind of person that you are uh, and what you do has ripple effects, um, some of which you won't even know until you're in heaven someday. Think about about that. God has a plan for your life. And the hard parts play a critical role in that plan. Even though we can't see how at the time. Or we don't understand how it's all going to come together. But hindsight. In hindsight we can look back and we can see how God used even the hard parts. And maybe even especially the hard parts. In the curriculum this week it says this. this God cares not only about the big details of his grand plan. But also about the daily concerns of human beings. And you might wonder, how can that possibly be? How is it possible that God can care and orchestrate his plan, his grand plan for the whole world, and yet at the same time care for the personal needs of an individual like you or me? And the only answer I know to that is that that's how great God is. Because the Bible says that he does. So seven years of plenty have passed. And... The famine is here, and in the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to, uh, to the seed of Abraham, to his prodigy, old Jacob, he's still alive. He's 130 years old. How do you suppose he's doing? Well, he's not doing really great. It's not because he's 130 years old, but he's not doing really great because he has spent the last 20 years of his life living with the reality of the events that transpired some 20 years ago when, when his heart was ripped out of his chest and dashed to the ground. Or so I assume it feels, because I don't have a lot of personal experience what it's like to lose a child that way. But he's not doing really great. And what about... What about the, the boys? His boys. Well, we're going to find out. Because that's really what this is all about. Suppose they moved on. Moved on with their lives. Appearances would say yes. And after all, they had gotten rid of the problem, right? Right? They got rid of the problem because Joseph was the problem, right? And he's no more. They got rid of him. So now they're doing good, right? Yeah. 
Genesis 42, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So he hasn't moved on, has he? Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now Joseph, verse 6, was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of, uh, to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. It says there was a famine in the land. Um, I'm going to read uh, Genesis 26, verse 1 to you. It says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. That's the days of, of Isaac. He says in the days of Isaac there was a famine, not the same famine that was in the days of Abraham. That was a different famine. And today, today in the life of Jacob, there's another famine in the land. That's a different famine again. And the point would be that uh, these guys, this, this guy Jacob, he'd lived long enough. He'd seen famine before. This was not a new thing. I have a bit of a cold and I'm, I'm going to try to keep my throat lubricated. So my voice, I don't lose my voice, but um, so th this is nothing new. Famine in the land. Oh, Joseph, he's he's seen it all, but he doesn't like it, right? He says, "Go to uh, Egypt and buy grain that we may live." And not, and not die. Things are bad. We need, to, we need something to happen here. It's interesting uh, as we go through here, it's, it's the sense of providence here because I'm sure that we would come to these times in our life when things are bad and things are hard and we, we pray and we, we, we desire for God to do something. And when we do, we tend to think in the present tense, don't we? God, you need to do something. God, we need for you to do something. And when we read this account, what we find is, is that God has been at work all along. This is not something, this is some kind of new development, right? He's been at work the whole time. And so um, Jacob hears that there's food in Egypt. Uh, do you suppose the boys have heard about it? I, I suspect that they're probably the ones that told him because young people know, know what's going on. Us older people, we never know. We're always the last people to hear, right? So I, I suspect they knew all about it, but they weren't doing anything about it. And that's why J Jacob says to them, why are you standing there looking at each other? I don't want to read too much into that, but, but I think that that's... Uh, just basically the idea, the idea. Don't stand here looking at each other. Get going. Come on. And uh, so it says there that Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And uh, Joseph's brother came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. 
And I know when I read that before, I know where your minds went. Your minds went where? To Joseph's dreams. And, and as uh, I think Sean pointed out, this is the fulfillment. We're starting to see the fulfillment of those dreams that God gave to uh, Joseph when he was, when he was uh, young. So Genesis 42, verses 7 to 11. Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them. And he, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. You know, they, they, Joseph recognized them because they probably hadn't changed a whole lot. They were just getting a little bit older. But they never recognized Joseph because he changed tons, right? Um, he had, you know, shaved, clean shaven, different language, um, different clothes, all of that. And let's not forget the position and the success of this man. Like, they, they weren't. You know, there, there's no way they're going to recognize him. But he recognizes, he recognizes them. And, uh, and of course, it, he was speaking through an interpreter, right? And uh, that statement there, we are honest uh, men. It must have been a, a bit of a mouthful for them, don't you think? And if you, read, you finish reading through... They said that over and over again. They said it two, three times to Pharaoh because he kept saying, no, you're a bunch of spies. He said, no, 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 we're honest men, we're honest men. And then when you go back home to Jacob, they tell the story and they're saying it again and again. Out of their mouths come these words. We are honest men. We are honest men. Right? It's interesting. And so in telling, uh, telling the story too, uh, how's it go? Uh, um, we, are, uh, we are honest men. And verses, let me see, 42... 12, 17. They said to him, no, it is the, uh, the, he said, no, I don't believe you. It's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, we are your servants. We're 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. That's a very diplomatic way to put it. Considering that they were the ones that got rid of him. One is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, if you are really honest men. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. But he put them all together in custody for three days. Threw them in the huskow. Three days. What do you suppose went through their mind uh, during those three days? What did they think about? You suppose Joseph had heard those words before. You're spies. You're just a spy. And then he threw them in the dungeon. Which is exactly what they did to him. They accused him of being a spy for their father, coming to rat on them, and threw him in the pit. And twice in the previous chapter, 
the prison there is called the pit. The correlations here are are are, are uh, very graphic, and they're meant for us to be to be identified and appreciated. Um, so, <laughs> what's what's Joseph up to here? It's it's a really big deal, and as we read on, is we'll see it's it's um, it's more than. Uh, perhaps meets the eye sometimes. Uh, 42, 18 to 22 says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you shall live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. But then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. What do you suppose they were thinking about for three days? What do you suppose they were talking about for three days? This is what they were talking about. Because even though 20 years had passed, this was all fresh. They hadn't gotten over any of it. They hadn't gotten beyond any of it. Because that's the way guilt and shame and regret works in our lives. And, and, and then, they, then they say there, notice what they say. It says, uh, in that we saw the distress of his soul. And when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning, a day of reckoning. Yeah, they could still hear his voice crying. 20 years later, they could still hear his voice crying and ringing in their ears. So what's Joseph doing with all of this? What about Joseph? Has, has, uh, has he moved on? God has moved Joseph into a position. A position that would allow him and would allow God through him to um, save his family and the world from starvation. But there's way, way, way more going on here. Think about this. God is the one who sent the famine in the first place. So to see the life of Joseph simply as God saving the world from famine doesn't even really make sense because God's the one who sent the famine. Why would God do that? Well, let's keep going. Let's go back to the land of Canaan. Jacob says to his sons, I want you to go to Egypt. Stop standing around looking at each other. Get busy and go to Egypt and get some grain that we may, chapter 42, verse 2, that we may live and not die. That's old and tired Jacob. And those are his hopes and dreams. What's, what's he saying? He's saying we're, our lives are in jeopardy here and, and, and we're not going to survive this. But if we could get some grain, we would be able to survive. We could get some bread. We could survive. At least, at least we wouldn't starve to death. 
What are your hopes and dreams? Survival? One step up from being dead? And again, I don't want to read too much into this text, but, but as we, we'll see, I don't, I don't believe I am. I believe that Jacob was living a miserable life. And so were all his sons. They were all miserable, the whole works of them. If we could just get some bread, at least we would be able to keep our body and our souls together. God wants so much more, and he is up to so much more, because God is about to use Joseph to restore the brokenhearted and bring peace to a broken family and to reconcile those relationships that really constitute what the Bible talks about when it talks about us living, not just surviving, but living. Not just surviving, but thriving. And if we miss this, we miss the best part of the story. Um, They think the famine is the problem. God doesn't see the famine as the problem. Rather, think about it, God sees the famine as part of the means to fix the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the disintegration of people's hearts and the nurturing family bonds. These guys are brothers, right? They're brothers. And I, I uh, would point out to you that that term is the same term used in Scripture as we go through Scripture and we come into the New Testament. It's the same term that is used by Jesus and the apostles after him to refer to our relationships with one another. And, and we obviously don't have time to go into it all uh, here today, but if you read through your Bible, you will see that that is a profound emphasis throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole Bible, but throughout the New Testament, is how we treat one another and uh, the relationships that we have with one another. The problem wasn't the famine. The problem was the state of sin and condemnation of guilt that existed in, the, in the, uh, these, uh, these family members. Um, they weren't really living. It's a kind of like being dead. I, I hope that, that as we think through these things I, today, I, I hope that you can, you can think with me about uh, how prevalent this attitude and this idea is in our lives, that, that we um, are prone to this, this um, uh, attitude or understanding uh, of life that is so, so far beneath or below what God has in mind when he refers to life. How often do we think of it as just being able to just keep body and soul together, to have what we need to survive? We have roof over our head, and we have food in our cupboard. We're good. And God looks at that and goes, 
this is not good. It's not good. Jesus referred to the, to the Pharisees. He said, uh, he said you're, like, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look good on the outside, but inside you're filled with dead man's bones. And sometimes as I look around uh, our world, I think of how many people are dead men walking. Because, yeah, they have food on their tables and uh, a roof over their heads. But there's so much more to what God wants for, for our, our lives. Joseph has been rejected and discarded and enslaved and mistreated. But to some degree, Joseph has been able to move on past that. Because he had two sons in Egypt born before the famine even came. And he named the first one uh, um, Ephraim. Did I get that wrong? Let me look at my notes. Manasseh, thank you. Um, the first one he named Manasseh, and uh, the reason I got that wrong was because of the, uh, this thing here that, right, that happens later. Did you read that? Did you read through the rest of the chapter? Yeah, or the rest of the uh, book. Um, <laughs> Manasseh means uh, he makes me forget. And he says there, because God made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. And he named his second son Ephraim, or Ephraim, which means fruitful or productive or thriving. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, it says in 40, chapter 41. And so, as I say, that was all recorded before the famine had even come. So Joseph was mistreated and abused and rejected and enslaved, but he was free. Beyond that, Joseph's actions, as we follow through the storyline here, it says that he, he treated them harshly. Was that retribution? Was that payback? Not at all. Joseph has a whole thing that he's doing here. And it's really spectacular. A question for you. Which do you think is harder to move on from things done to you? Or things you've done. I don't want you to try to answer that. Because you will answer it too quickly. Rather than thinking about it. And I really think that that's something we need to think about. <coughs> what about the brothers? What about the father? Joseph has to some degree moved on. What about them? I suspect they tried. I suspect they talked uh, the talk. You know how people will talk the talk of moving on. They'll say things like, oh, I have dealt with it. I've moved on. And they're lying to themselves. Not in every case, don't get me wrong, but often that's what we do. We tell ourselves we've moved on. We might look like we've moved on. and We haven't moved on at all. 20 years, they haven't made an inch of progress. Now, that's what comes out in the text. I'm not just speculating about that. That's what comes out here in, 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 this, uh, in this passage. Let's go back to the storyline. Uh, Genesis 42, 
verse 23 and 24a. It says, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. Do people who have moved on weep? Yes. Because we weep for different reasons. But as you see when you move through here, Joseph is not weeping because he hasn't hasn't moved through and processed forgiveness in his heart. This is a different type of weeping. How many of you have ever wept for joy, for example? Yeah. All right. Genesis 42, 24, uh, the last part of the, uh, the verse and, and verse 25 says, And he returned to them, and he spoke to them. He took Simeon from them, and he bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money back in the sack and give them provision for the journey. And this was all done. So they head home through their aged father. Poor Simeon, he's, he's left there uh, in prison. And they head home. And then the verses that follow, they follow, they, they travel and, and they're out one day's journey and they stop for the night and they all unload their, their uh, luggage and they look, one of them looks in a sack and there is the money with the grain. And it's like, oh. And it's interesting, their comment in verse 28 says, what is this that God has done to us? A God conscience which is a good thing. So they finished the trip home uh, because they have to go get Benjamin, right? Because what Joseph said was, you've got to bring Benjamin back or Simeon is going nowhere. Right? Uh, and so they go, they go home, they make the trip home, and they speak to Jacob, and uh, Jacob's response is, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is, Simeon is no more, and now you would take... Benjamin from me, which you can read into that kind of like this. You have failed me. Maybe not, but I think there might be some of that in there. Or maybe you have failed me again. Because even if Jacob doesn't know that they disposed of Joseph, he knows that they were supposed to be responsible for him. He was their little brother after all, right? Um, so Reuben, he speaks up and he says, give them to me, give Benjamin to me, and if I don't bring them back, kill my two sons, which is pretty harsh, pretty rash, and doesn't go anywhere with Jacob. Um, Jacob says in verse 38, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. That would be a cutting thing to say, wouldn't it? See, what we're seeing here is, is a, a, a dad and, and these kids, and they're a mess. Uh, and his, and his, his next words, uh, verse 38, last part, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs to, to, with sorrow to Sheol. And he put his foot down and he just says, I cannot do this. I cannot do, do this. I cannot 
do this? Have you ever said that? Then chapter 43, verse 1 says, but the famine, the famine. And I can just hear, I can just hear Jacob now. Damn that famine. It's ironic, isn't it? The famine was severe in the land, and they had eaten all their bread. Where does that leave them? What choice does that leave them with? See, God just boxing them in and boxing them in and boxing them in. The very things that they were so resentful toward, the very things that God was using to work an incredible miracle of restoration and reconciliation in their lives. So Judah, he speaks up this time, and, he's, and he, he uh, makes a pledge. And he says, give the boy to me. Now, Benjamin is older now than Joseph was when they got rid of him. But they're calling him a boy here. And the reason they're calling him a boy is because they've all come to understand. You take responsibility for people, right? So Jacob relinquishes because he has no choice. And, uh, but he's still a wreck. He says, I'm bereaved of my children. I'm bereaved. Uh, chapter 43, verse 14. So they took extra presents double the money, and they took the boy, and they go to Egypt. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he can hardly contain himself. He gets his servant to prepare a great feast. And they are all, they're all freaking out, wondering what's going to happen next, because this can't be good, and thinking the worst, and suddenly they bring Simeon out. That's right, Simeon has been in prison in Egypt all this time. All the while, while they're having this discussion, are we going to go and get the... You know, get more food or not, there's Simeon rotting in an Egyptian prison. Right? So they bring him out, and they're happy to see him, of course. And, and then uh, Joseph shows up, and they give him the presents. They give him healing balm and honey and gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. I love all those things. And then they bowed themselves down to the ground again, chapter 43, verse 26. And Joseph inquired of their father, and he said, how's your father doing? And they, and they bowed down again, and, and this time it says they prostrated themselves, verse 28. They couldn't get low enough. And then he starts looking, and Joseph looks at Benjamin, and he's trying to keep it together, but he just cannot keep it together. And so he runs out of the room, off to a corner somewhere, and he starts weeping uncontrollably. Why is he putting himself through all this? Why doesn't he just say, it's, hey guys, it's me, Joseph? It's because there's something going on here. There's something desperately important that needs to happen, and Joseph understands what it is that needs to happen. Because along with all of the incredible intelligence uh, that God gave and wisdom that God gave to Joseph to, that, that saw him rise to that place of prominence in politics and business in Egypt, he had something way more important that we sometimes refer to as emotional intelligence that allowed him to do what God uh, had planned for him to do with these relationships 
And these men who, who were his brothers who were suffering in guilt and shame and needed to be delivered from it. Think about it. So they have this big feast. And all of the brothers are over here. And Joseph's over here eating all by himself. You can read it in the, in the passage. And it says there that the reason that they did this was because that Hebrews were an abomination to the Egyptians. That's verse 32. Shepherds. It, was, it, it, it could have been a racist thing, but it more likely was just urban prejudice. You know, how people think that they're all mucky-muck and, you know, all those stupid shepherds, you know. You know, whatever. Um, but but, but whatever, for whatever reason, I mean, think about it. Here they are sitting down to feast, and Joseph is over here by himself, and all his brothers are over here eating. What's that remind you of? What does that remind you of? When was the last time they, they sat down to a feast together with Joseph? It was when Joseph was in that pit and they were up there eating without him and he was all down alone, crying out in the pit. See, these were all, these were all set up for us here uh, to drive the point home to us. And so they finished their meal and they set out and the, and the servant Joseph uh, commands the steward verses 1 and 2 of 44 he says uh, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put them each man's money in, in the mouth of a sack put my cup the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain and they did as Joseph told them and uh, because Joseph wasn't done yet Joseph still had not revealed himself to his brothers and um and so they set out, and they just barely get outside the city this time. And Joseph says to the servant, now you go, and you search their sacks. Because he had put that cup, right, in the sack of the youngest, Benjamin. And they go, and they, they chase them down. And, uh, and they say, you know, that, that uh, they're lo- what they're searching for. And the, and the brothers, of course, they're, they're credulous. They don't know what's going on. And, the, and they, so they say, whoever sack you find the chalice in, that one will die and the rest of us will be your slaves forever. Yeah. Very confident. So, uh, because after all, they're honest men, right? So, this, so he searches all the sacks one at a time and that's called suspense. Oldest to the youngest and then when they get to the youngest, there's the cup, the chalice. So they tear their clothes, and everyone goes back to the city where the final drama is about to play out. So it says in verse 14 of chapter 44, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. That is interesting. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and they, it says they prostrated themselves again. So here they are falling down in front of this guy over and over and over, and they have no idea who it is, Right? And Joseph confronts them, and he says, how could you do this? Did you think that your deed would remain uncovered and that you would not be found out? Think about those words. He's not just talking about the cup. The cup is just a, it's just a, you know, a, a, a tool in his plan, Right? So Judah speaks up. 
Interesting, again. What can we say? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? And then he says this, God has found out our guilt, and we are now your slaves. God has found out our guilt. It's all coming home. It's all coming home to them now, and we are your slaves. So this is when Joseph speaks up, and he says, oh, no, I'm not, I'm only interested in the one who had the cup. You, the rest of you, you're all free to go. Go home, and this is what he says, go home in peace to your father. I will keep the guilty one here, Benjamin, son of Rachel, brother to Joseph. I will keep Benjamin here because he's a thief and a snitch. The rest of you are free to go home. Go home in peace to your father. So here they are. 20 years earlier, they had left Joseph and gone home to their father. And they had not experienced a single day of peace since they did that. And here they are again. And Joseph has orchestrated this. Rather, God has orchestrated this through Joseph. Don't, don't miss these allusions to this peace. Because it's a really important part of the story. It's one thing to just exist in this world. It's another thing to have the kind of quality of life that the Bible talks about when it talks about us having uh, that, sh that shalom, that peace. Not just uh, alive, but to thrive, to flourish, to be fruitful. So then jo Judah. Judah walks right up to Joseph in an act probably a, as desperate as it was heroic, and he begins to plead with Joseph. And he starts to spill his guts. He starts rehearsing the whole painful, putrid, pitiful mess that's gone on even in those few uh, uh, months. And uh, let's read verses 18 to 20, 44. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, Calls him, calls him Lord. Please let your servants speak. Calls himself servants. Speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let your, not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord um, asked his servants, saying, Have you, are you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, and a child of his, uh, his old age. His brother is dead. Dead? Yeah, they thought he was dead. And they were at fault. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. He has no clue in the world. He's talking to Joseph. You couldn't place anything farther away from Judah's mind right now than the reality of his situation. And then he goes into what you said. You said this, and, and we, you know, we said this, and then we, you know, you said this, and so we went, and we went to our father, and we said this, and he said this, and, it's, and you read down through the storyline there, and it's really uh, quite interesting 
Um, and he just spills it out. Um, now, you may not think of it as a full confession because he doesn't, doesn't say to Joseph about what they did to him. He didn't go there. What he does talk about is his father and how if they went home without Benjamin, it would kill Jacob. It would kill him. Now, why would Judah be so convinced of that? It's because he's been watching Jacob for the last 20 years. He saw all the pain. He saw the hurt that he, was, that he caused or that they caused to their father. And he's saying, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do it. Uh, and it would be good for us to drill down on that and think some about Judah's motives here. Um, he says, I've given a pledge. I've given myself as a pledge. I will bear the blame before my father all my life. Notice it doesn't say all his life. It says all my life. Even after Jacob dies, I will still bear that blame to the day I die. Think about that. Now, we come to the climax of the story right here. Because they still don't know. They still don't know. He still doesn't know who he's talking to. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. What's he doing? He's offering himself. He's offering up himself. He's offering up himself for his brother. Not just any brother either. He's willing to suffer vicariously for his brother, for the love of his father. How big is that? <laughs> that's a heart change is what that is and that's what Joseph was looking for that's a heart change 20 years if you are here today and you're living with an offense or a regret or a transgression, or a broken relationship. How long has it been for you? Twenty years. And here, finally, we see Judah's heart change. It excites me to know that our kids are learning this right now in their classrooms, or I trust they are. Joseph couldn't control himself any longer. 
It's what it says, 45 verse 1. Joseph couldn't control himself any longer, and he starts to cry. It says the entire household of the Pharaoh heard it. Joseph is living in the palaces of Egypt. And these are, this weeping is just, The sound of hearts, he, excuse me, healing. It's the sound of what hearts healing sounds like. And the brothers were stunned. It says they couldn't even talk. It's the same response that Jacob has in verse 26. When he finds out that Joseph is alive, it says that he couldn't even speak stunned. Well, yeah, you can imagine. You can imagine how stunned they were. And maybe it's the way we should feel when we get struck upside the head with the immensity of our guilt and our shame on the one hand, and at the same time, the incredible warmth and nourishing love and grace of God to us forgiveness, that grace. So Joseph explains everything to them. And uh, he fell, falls, uh, 45, 14, 15, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's a lot of weeping, isn't it? Not just Joseph, they're all weeping now. All these grown men, they would be in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, weeping, crying like a bunch of little babies. Because in the truth, in the end, that's all we really are. So then he explains his plan to them. He's going to go send them back. Um, send them back to, I'm almost finished here, but send them back to, to Canaan, get their father, bring their children, get their children, bring them all down to uh, Egypt, to the land of Goshen. And so they put, put that, they put that plan in effect and they head out. It's interesting, on the way out, he says, don't fight on the way. Verse 24. Verse 24, is what he says. So they go back, and, all, um, and that's precisely what happens, and uh, Joseph, uh, or the, the brothers go back, and they get Jacob, and they bring all the, of the women and all the children, and the story of J Joseph and Jacob comes to an end, humanly speaking, and the book of Genesis draws to a close. And even in those other later chapters, there is some really significant drama there, the drama of Joseph revealing himself to his father. Wouldn't you like to have been there, you know? It would be amazing, right? But I always wondered why, uh, why uh, Joseph didn't go with them back to uh, Canaan to uh, experience, you know, why did he take a pass on that? Why did he, let, why did he send his brothers back to Canaan and, and miss the opportunity to see the look on his father's face? Wouldn't you have been tempted to do that? I'm going to go home. We're all going to go up there. You guys just stay in the carts here, and I'm going to walk up and knock on the tent door of the tent, and when Dad opens the door, I'm going to see his face. And Joseph passed on all that. And I, I always wondered, why would you pass on something like that? Do you know why he passed on that? Some of you do and some of you don't, but I think I know. 
him staying in Egypt, meant that those brothers had to go home and tell their father what they did. And that's what they did. 20 years. And they became honest men. Now, I, this clock says 22 minutes after 12, and that can't be right, but... Um, <laughs> we... We haven't talked about some of those their great um, truths that we so often relate to these closing passages. You know, these statements from uh, Joseph, so it was not you who sent me here, but God, Genesis 45, verse 8. Um, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. But, and I encourage you to, to spend some time meditating on those great and wonderful truths as we witness how God put all of this together and orchestrated it through Joseph. But I want to draw your attention to uh, a different verse. And it's chapter 45, verse 27, where it says this. Uh, this is when uh, um, the brothers went home and told Jacob, okay, that Joseph was alive. And it says there, um, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe. He just stood there stunned. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Now, the reason I share that with you is because when I was studying that, this whole thing this week, I, I noticed in one of the commentaries that it pointed out that the word there, revived, is the Hebrew word for lived. There are so many things that we could take from these passages. The greatness of God in, in sending Joseph ahead of them. How they meant it for evil all along, but God intended it for good. And those are incredible things to think about. But as I've studied through these passages in recent weeks, what has really struck me is how God had bigger fish to fry. It wasn't about saving the family or even the world from starvation. It was about God moving in the hearts of men and women to address the real issues of our lives, which is not having food or shelter. It's about our sin and our guilt and our shame and our need to be reconciled and restored and to be reconciled into those relationships that God calls life. Because the, at the end of the day, that's what life is all about. You can have every physical thing you need 
and be just a dead man walking. So as I stand here before you this morning and we close this service time, I'll ask you one more time, how long has it been for you, those of you who have something in your life that you keep telling yourself you've moved on from and you haven't moved an inch because it's all still there. God is at work. He's been at work. And maybe it's time for you to stop just existing and begin to experience what the Bible calls life. The love, the peace, the joy, the forgiveness. Not just to survive, but to thrive. And to flourish. And to be really fruitful in the things that really matter. That's what this is here for. That's what this is here for. So I invite you to pray with me this morning. And as we pray, I invite you to stand and pray. <clears throat> Excuse me. I can pray for you, but I cannot pray in your place. So you need to pray today. If there's something specific that God's been speaking to your heart about this morning through these passages of Scripture, I invite you to pray in your heart. Pray to the Father. Lord, I thank you for this tremendous group of people here today. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the lessons of your word and how important they are for us. We need your help with these things because we look at our situation and we blame things. And really, those aren't the things that we have problems with at all. We thank you that your word has the ability to cut through all of those things and allow you to put your finger on things that really matter. Lord, I pray this morning for every single one of us here that we would do real serious business with you today, that you would change our hearts, that you would do a miracle of grace in our hearts, that we might experience real forgiveness real restoration, real reconciliation, so that we really can move on, not just survive, but really thrive and experience the life, what you call life, blessedness, peace and love and joy, fellowship that we have with one another and with you as our Father. Help us, Lord, with these things this day. May there be breakthroughs here today for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.